This episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. Um, so today is February 12th. We've got, I think, a pretty good episode for you today. Um, but before we get to all of that, how about the basic rundown? Yeah, absolutely. So it is the middle of February, which means that you should be expecting our first pages episode. If you are not a Patreon subscriber or you are listening to this and going, Laura, what in the heck is the first pages episode? Well, I'm going to tell you. This is what my thinking earlier was that we should have done like a Billy Mays style ad for these episodes. Yeah. Maybe we can stage that sometime. Yeah. I need to buy a video camera <clears throat> and some bleach. Yeah. Good. Um, <laughs> but um, so we have three special episodes that go up throughout the month. We've got a query show that's available to our Patreon supporters for $3 a month, including all of the backlist you get access to, um, where we critique real queries. Then we've got the first pages show, which is where we go through, you guessed it, the first pages in the exact same way that we do the query show, but with the beginning of your novel. Um, And then writing by reading is an episode where we spend some time with a published book, one that's kind of like in the public eye at the moment. And we really dissect a small part of that to to give you the writer takeaways. Um, so and those all three episodes are available for eight dollars a month. So you should head on over to Patreon and sign up. Um, also, if you want us to critique your query page or your first page, um, send them to us at printrunpodcast at gmail dot com. Mm-hmm. So. We've got my favorite starting point and yours for okay. all shows, which is what is Amazon doing this week? Oh, my goodness gracious. <laughs> um, well, this week it's actually – and this, I guess, is probably true every time they do something where it's actually really interesting and in the short term something I think that is going to be kind of useful and cool. Um, so this is according to a Washington Post article, and it's their own news. So here um, they're reporting that the Washington Post is now going to be the first – um, the first newspaper to create a bestseller list that incorporates ebook subscription data from Amazon, from Am- for, specifically from Amazon, right? And they're also going to be creating lists that are kind of geared around um, some of the really hyper-specific data that Amazon Charts is able to provide. You know, like whether it's regional or things like that, they're going to be printing the DC list um, in the paper. And so, wait, so they're printing like who is reading what in the DC area? Yeah, they're going to syndicate on the Amazon Charts most read list um, for you know. DC area. Folks I wonder in. if they'll have in like in the next months or years if they'll do regional lists, like what people sure are reading will. in Chicago. I'm sure. That's the, neat. The, yeah. No. I mean, it, but that's but that's kind of what there is to talk about here. Is first of all, um, we've known for a while that with Amazon charts and everything that this is a huge body of information that they are very very nimble at sorting into ways that I think most publishing people and reading and readers are interested in. Right. Like you can now. And I think um, more than even that, um, like this article claims, is that this really does finally provide um, the truest sense of what's selling and more importantly, what's being read, right? Because, um, you know, books are not simply um, read in print by retail anymore. You know, there's ebook subscription, there's audiobooks, there's all sorts of, of other technologies now that kind of define the 
reading experience and the selection of what you're what you're interested in actually reading. And this is now an effort to capitalize on that. And um, you know, they mention here in the um, in the kind of their little press release that um, it's sort of meant to complement the rest of Wapo's book coverage, right? Like it's going to be they sort of view it as complementary to the criticism and the reviews they run in the paper um, each week and. Um, to me, that's where I started to kind of see it as the gap filler that the New York Times left behind. And if you've listened to us before, we have talked about that frequently, right? Like um, the New York Times decided to scrap a bunch of its categories for the uh, New York Times bestseller list. Just and, a little over a year ago. yeah. Right. And that kind of um, that got us thinking about a lot of different things, mostly in that um, these lists and we won't repeat everything we say in those episodes here, but. Um, those lists get used in a lot more ways than just, hmm, I wonder what number six is. Like, this is how people discover books. You know, this is how um, people, this is how people, it's a marketing tool, right? Like, being on the bestseller list is a is an ad in and of itself. And with, um, with this change, it, I mean, it obviously, it gives even more influence to the behavior of Amazon, right? Like, because we've seen... Um, we've seen people try to game the bestseller list before. We saw that one very incredible attempt that we... Laney uh, Serum. <laughs> um, but, like, people try to people try to play the list. People try to manipulate the list. People are interested in being on it because they know it is more than just a cataloging of data. And so now, if that, cataloging, if that cataloging of data is intrinsically entwined with... Um, with Amazon's data, and it should be honestly, because they're the Amazon ones selling. The bigger, because they're the ones selling books. books. Like yeah. to be clear, I mean, obviously, we express hesitation about Amazon all the time on the show, but we need this, right? This because we it is important to have the most accurate representation of what the book mm-hmm. what book buyers are looking at. And so, I don't know. Like, what do you think about this? So, in some ways, I'm actually really excited Me too. to see like the the most accurate list possible mm-hmm. um because you know as we talked about a couple of weeks ago like to look at the new york times bestseller list now it's just kind of like boring and static um there's you know people who are just on the list forever and ever and ever and ever yeah. and it's yeah. really hard for people to crack into in certain weeks and you know it's lessening like, an influence exactly exactly and so the the whole reason originally for the new york times to reduce their number of categories is because they wanted to increase other types of coverage for books so they were seeing you know maybe they weren't being as um i'm not sure if i agree with this but they came to the conclusion that 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 their list wasn't meaning as much anymore and so they wanted to be known in other ways and kind of cement that you know people for come for the reviews yeah. yeah people come for the the the, the curated lists mm-hmm. in other ways mm-hmm. um it says a lot that right after that happened amazon created their own bestseller list well not, they saw the gap they saw the gap and so the one thing that amazon was missing was it was missing uh syndication in print right um, and now the Washington Post has given Amazon that. And the mm-hmm. Washington Post is coming in um, and kind of swooping out some some spots, I think, for the New York Times. Like mm-hmm. all of the the interest that um, that was kind of thought to bring to the New York Times having fewer spots, you know, with more more reviews. I'm really wondering if having a more robust and kind of more comprehensive list will make the Washington Post reviews 
more important than the New York Times reviews. Yeah. I think. Well, they'll be more accurate. Yeah. Well, they will. And they'll better reflect the reading landscape. They will. And, you know, like I, I so wanted, Eric, I so wanted when I compared the Washington Post bestseller list and the New York Times bestseller list, I wanted them to be the same. I really did. Yep. And they're extremely different. Well, of course not, because one set is using um, is using a vast amount of proprietary data that the other side doesn't have. And like I think about. Um, you know, I made a joke online when it first came out. I was like, hmm, I wonder what the what the connection between Washington Post and Amazon is. I wonder if there's any, like, tie there at all. And, of course, it's, um, you know, Bezos owns both. Does I he mean, really? Yeah, oh. it's his paper. Mm. It's his paper. Yeah. So, like, you can kind of see how this stuff tends to creep into the one big, like, Uber Corp, you know. <laughs> but um, it's, it's interesting, and I think that that um, – you know, that syndication point you make is really important because now um, it's, it's you know, Amazon is kind of becoming translated into the ways that readers are traditionally conditioned to think about, you know, book book buying and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, like, and honestly, you know, the thing that's cool about it, if you're, any, if you're interested in this, and I mean, we are, is the amount of, um, just the sheer amount of ways they could sort some of this data. And I want to read... Um, from the last bit here that kind of lists some some interesting things that they're going to be able to do. So here we go. The Post's lists are backed by new in, in-house technology called Bradbury, which we're going to laugh about here in a second. Don't, don't. I'm, I'm, I'm trying God to tamp it. it down. I'm trying. God damn it. Bradbury. Hold on. No, you know, let's do it now. Let's do it now. They're calling this, this technology that... Um, Allows people that, to track reading habits and book sales. Yeah, it's called Bradbury. Um, so that's good and on the nose. And we're not living in a dystopia devoid of subtext at all. Um, you so, know, at least they're listing the books and sorting the books and not burning yeah. the books. Yeah, that's good. I guess, yeah. I guess we're, in a, we're in a good place. Um, maybe we need to bring him back as an FBI author of the week, by the way. That might be fun. Anyway. <clears throat> so it's called Bradbury. <laughs> yeah. The post lists are backed by new in-house technology called Bradbury, which speeds the editing process using a streamlined workflow, allowing a single editor create to create far more lists in much less time. Bradbury enables the post to automatically import data from multiple sources and opens up the opportunity to syndicate its lists via an API. Heliograph, the post's automated storytelling system, will be used to generate a data-driven weekly synopsis detailing any movement on the list from the week prior, including noting fastest rising titles, authors, new additions, and historic performance on the list. Titles in this list will also link back to the post review of the book when applicable. So you're seeing what we're getting here. I mean, this, this is, is exactly what we asked it's for. It's cool. No, yeah. this is. Re- I mean, you know, this is like, this is everything we want. This is sort of the blending of list and synthesis of the list that we've been kind of looking for like i think even just like the simple change of like being able to click on you know the book on the list and get to the review and i bet you pretty soon you're going to get an amazon link right in there you know what i mean like this whole thing it's it's starting to kind of bleed together and in the short term i mean yeah it's going to be um it's going to be interesting because we're going to be able to look at all sorts of different stuff but you can see similar to how when it entered ebooks in that um, amazon episode we did um, this is the sort of thing that I think will someday be used as a cudgel for leverage, right? I I have a I have a thought. So we've we've been talking a little bit about Fire and Fury kind of every week, yeah. right? And it is the official print run take that Fire and Fury is not going to last. Like mm-hmm. it's not really gonna have a tail. Does anyone talk about it anymore? You know, when was the last time you heard someone? I mean, like, have a talk? I'm I one of. Uh, 
there's somebody that I know in publishing who put his name on down on it from for his library and he's uh-huh. apparently like 143rd in line for the library well, but so there's like still, yeah. but there are pe- there are copies all over Barnes and Noble that nobody's buying anymore right. yeah, that's what I, yeah. um which I also heard from like a Barnes and Noble employee but so that that is kind of like the old school thinking right like you sell 800,000 copies in the first week and then it's just kind of this great and then you've like got the money and then the publisher can like run away and sure. be happy right sure. um i think what Amazon is really great at and I think what the Washington Post is is trying to kind of get in on is the 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 idea that like a tail or like a reach that a book has over time and over different audiences as, as audiences grow up and their interest shift and things happen in in our current culture and you know current events um, that that is more valuable and more important like t- talking about what books are rising the fastest, yeah. you know, or, or, you know, kind of beyond just like, okay, like the hate you give is at number one again for the, you know, 42nd time this week. Like mm-hmm. that's all the information the New York times gives you. But if we get information about like how those sales are happening from week to week to week and how that book is engaging with other books that come out or have also been on the list for a really long time and kind of see how fast all of that is rising and, yeah. and how that's working, you you get a better sense of of what books are going to last and like what books are going to kind of like put themselves into canon. Well, just wait for what they're going to be able to do with this stuff. I mean, I'm just thinking about all the cool things I'm going to be interested in hearing about that they're going to be able to give me at the touch of a button. You know, things like, hey, this is the third, you know, science fiction book that's been on the list in the last two months. You know, this is, you know, there's all sorts of little genre things and category things and like anything. I mean, this any- is the hotsy totsiest <laughs> book on the list. <laughs> this is the hotsiest, to- the hotsy totsy book of the week. Maybe we should have that. That sounds like something I we would do. agree. Um, Write but- that down. <laughs> but no, I mean, I just, I guess. So it's it's I have two feelings about it. One is that I'm really excited to read this as it comes out, and I'm going to monitor because it's going to provide all sorts of cool synthesis of information that I think the book world could, re- world could really benefit from. But at the same time, like it's going to be the same thing we see always, right? They're going to use this, and everyone's going to come to treat it as an absolutely essential reality, and then they're going to start making (laughs) boatloads of money they're gonna start using it as a cudgel to get whatever else they want out of the book industry and because they're gonna be the only ones that have it like i don't know it's so you know i mean we're probably past whatever point that we could you know stop any of this you know back against amazon (laughs) yeah exactly like at this point like we might as it's like you know it's capitalism right like we might as well get some cool treats along the way like it's this sure is bradbury (laughs) isn't it (laughs) Man, yeah, it's, I bet Jeff Bezos is just like sitting in his gigantic match and going, meow, meow, meow. I mean, that's how I picture yeah. him, yeah. Um, but that's, I mean, anyway, it, it is really cool. And um, I think that it's going to try to do some of the things we were asking for the New York Times to have done. I wonder and if they the didn't. New York and now, Times, they're, yeah. now they're here. I hope that um, they're feeling, you know, they're, I think the last thing I heard from their book department was. Um, didn't their editor like tweet about how she was mad at service, service workers. workers grammar? Yeah, that's good. So things are going great over at, uh, yeah, they should, books. yeah, they should feel real good about themselves. Uh, anyway. Um, okay. So I want to transition to another topic. Um, that's kind of been all over the children's literature community this week. Um, so I'm going to take this moment and give our listeners a trigger warning for, uh, sexual assault and harassment. Um, because that's what this, 
whole entire rest of this episode is about. Um, so to give you a little bit of background, because a lot of a lot of the conversation that's been happening has been happening online. And as is the case with social media, a lot of the time um, something happens and you miss that. And then, you know, kind of the narrative becomes the reactions to that one thing. And it's hard to follow. Yeah. So I am going to give everybody kind of a, a chronological takedown of what exactly is happening and then kind of um, have a discussion and point to the future about it. So last fall, um, journalist Mark Halperin was dropped by Penguin Press um, because of reports due to sexual harassment, right? Like that was really the first time a publisher or like somebody somebody in publishing was really like slammed specifically for harassment, at least publicly, right? And this was happening when all of the journalists were being called out for, for harassment, right? Um, so that was kind of the first one, but it, but it kind of... It, it, it stood by itself for a few months. Sure. Then at the beginning of December, uh, Giuseppe Castellano, who is the executive art director of um, Penguin Workshop, which is um, Penguin Random House's imprint for like children's books, mm-hmm. resigned um, after Charlene Yi, who's an actress, made allegations against him um, mm-hmm. for for sexual harassment. Um, so now we have a a um, executive art director. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, then not a lot, but on February 7th, Minneapolis based children's author Anne Ursu, who is amazing, you should read her books, um, published an article on Medium of a survey she did of harassment in the children's publishing community. And it was completely anonymous. It's not, you know, it wasn't meant to be kind of like this gigantic expose, but it was meant to be kind of, um, an account taking, you know, an opportunity for people to share their stories. Um, and because it was anonymous, um, which we'll get to in a little bit, there's been a lot of conversation after this um, after this survey came out about Whisper Networks. But I'm not quite done yet. Um, so February 7th, that article was published. The, um, the survey was happening for quite a while before. But then... Um, this week, David Diaz resigned from the SEBWI board, which is the Society for um, Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. It is like it's it's the Romance Writers of America for children's books. Sure. Right. Um, and he resigned from being on the board um, because somebody came forward with a claim of harassment that stemmed from a 2012 incident at an SCBWI conference. Um, School Library Journal this week posted an article about this. And all of a sudden, people started naming names in the comments of this yeah. particular article reporting on this. So um, I there's there's been a lot of names named, um, but probably one of the two biggest besides David Diaz that have been named include Jay Asher, who wrote 13 Reasons Why, which you might know either from the book itself or from um, the Netflix series. And then James Dashner, who, who wrote The Maze Runner and the rest of that series. Um, that was turned into movies that I didn't think did super well, but they made like more than one of them. So it must have done OK. So we're kind of at this beginning yes, of, what of the is, reckoning of what. Yeah, exactly. Of what is starting to feel like publishing's turn in the Me Too movement. Right. Is that was that fair to say? Like we've yes. kind of hit um, our like it was always going to make it this way. Um, and now it has. And. We're here, and I think that it's kind of important to spend a minute talking about what that means for the book world, how the book world should respond, and all sorts of other things like that, huh? Yeah. 
So um, I, I'm, I, we're going to jump around here because this is a very like kind of complex yeah. topic and there are a lot of kind of avenues I feel like we need to address. Um, but first, I kind of want to call out something that I've been kind of talking about with Eric and, and some other writers over the past few days. Um, and it's just an interesting observation. And that's this. Mostly right now, it's authors and illustrators being called out for um, for harassment. Right. Um, and I think that there's it's a really interesting point that publishing is starting with the writers. And I think yeah. it tells a lot about what this industry is doing. And it kind of puts us at a crossroads. Right. So we've. We've talked a lot about on the show about how publishing is organized in such a way that makes writers seem dispensable. Absolutely. There there are, you know, a lot of examples of people going, well, I wanted to report this person, but they were kind of in power and I was a debut author and I didn't want to ruin my career. Right. Um, That's that's a legitimate fear. But it's also it says a lot when. Um, even though people are talking about editors and agents doing a lot of harassment, they're the ones, they're not being named, right? It's the authors and the illustrators that are being named because the idea is even if they're, even if they're really big, right? Even if they're really big and really popular, you can just replace them with somebody else. Well, I think we should read, I mean, I think there's a quote from the school library journal article that fits this pretty well. And it was, um, the writer who ended up accusing uh, Diaz of um, or eventually deciding to come forward. And this person said as follows, editors want to work with people they can work with. No one wants to be that nightmare author, says the writer who co-authored a children's book in 2015 and has a picture book coming out in 2019. I didn't want, and then in brackets here, a sexual harassment claim to stop me from becoming the writer I wanted to become in order to thrive in this industry and in order to succeed in this industry. And so that gets me thinking, and I think you thinking, um, about quite a bit of different things. And the first is exactly what um, you're talking about, right? Like there's this sort of power imbalance that occurs in publishing where mostly in every situation, but for the select few household name authors you've heard of, um, publishers seem to hold all the sway and all the influence in terms of like who gets into the industry and who doesn't, right? Like this is... Um, you know, publishers are the interlopers coming in and the people actually, quote unquote, in publishing are the ones working in-house and stuff. And it creates the situation where like this person describes where people see their hold or their foothold or their chance in books as so tenuous that they're even willing under certain circumstances to endure harassment in order to keep hold of that chance. Right. And that obviously, I think, is. Um, an incredibly toxic situation. It's something that needs to be addressed. And it's the sort of thing that I think, um, as we've seen in other industries, whether, um, I mean, it's these powerful people doing things to people who have far less of a hold on, you know, the influence over their own lives or their careers. Writers are like the perfect scapegoat because yeah, they're, the, they're the names that everybody knows, yeah. but they're also the names that can be the most easily replaced. Yeah. yeah. And so we're kind of... I. We're at this moment, um, and it'll be interesting to see what unfolds, you know, as this kind of moves beyond children's literature. Um, we're at this moment when publishing kind of has a choice. They can either just continue condemning, you know, 
their their creators mm-hmm. as um, people who have bad behavior and kind of separate the the structure of publishing. And they should condemn those creators who well, are behaving should, badly. Right. To be to be clear, what but, you're saying here. But what I'm saying is is separating out the structure of publishing that allows that to happen right, right. from the actions of individual people. Mm-hmm. Um, what I hope and what I want to happen is that this kind of dovetails into a a deeper and more progressive conversation and then action about how publishing is organized in such a way that that protects these people, these types of people, and allows them into positions of power. Well, do you remember, um, this was, I think, last summer, we did what was kind of a, a silly, fun episode topic about summer Fridays right and we but like and it was kind of a useful conceit but like the idea of the topic was this kind of historical root of publishing where everyone who was powerful and under most circumstances here male you know got together in the closed room and that's how publishing kind of steered itself for a very long time in the middle of the 20th century right and um, it sort of created this very um, sort of closed door concentrated set of people in in charge of things and who got to kind of steer everything else. And when when I see this happening now, it's hard for me to separate um, those two thoughts because um, when we talk about who is considered, quote unquote, disposable and who is considered essential to the industry, um, the random writer who has a complaint is the person who publishing says is inessential. And the other end of that is the you know, the big name in-house um, genius editor. Ge- yeah, the quote unquote genius editor, right? And that's who is occupying these positions that they can't possibly ever be knocked from. And when that sort of power dynamic happens, I mean, this sort of exploitation is abs- it's it's going to occur. And it's something that becomes, at least perception wise, difficult to want to check, or it becomes an in- intimidating to run up against. And I think that you know, it's like you say, publishing kind of has a choice. You know, there's we've sort of had two forces collide here. We've got this old kind of guard that, you know, this old regressive guard that allows things like this to happen. And it is going to happen, like to your point that, um, you know, this stuff is going to reach in-house in certain places. It hasn't totally yet, but, um, you know, this is coming. It's part of, I mean, when you think of um, how many, I mean, you know, after you examine it, how many toxic um, bits of like publishing imagery and lore can you think of you know like the you know the big fancy editor suddenly having a fling with his you know editorial assistant you know all sorts of you know crap like that that all you, the pretty publicists exactly exactly that who then leave the industry right, exactly. you know two months later right you know these things that sort of become these sort of tropes that we all agree are sort of regressive and weird but um you know they sort of you know it sort of all it exists in this like solar system of toxicity you know and so there's that, and then there's this kind of new wave of people, or at least not necessarily new people, but this new wave of thinking that publishing needs to be much more, you know, representational and inclusive, and um, you know, obviously less misogynistic and safer. Safer. Yeah. I mean, a- apart from anything else, right? And these two things are going to kind of come to a head, and I think publishing, in a way, very soon is going to have to decide if they mean it, because you know, it's bo- you know, it's the book world that loves to do that loves to pretend it is at the front of every progressive cause, right? Like as soon as someone, you know, gets a progressive idea into a fashionable public space, it's the book world that's agreeing with it and publishing 
opinions and takes on it, you know, in the same way. And it loves to kind of co-opt, you know, language about representation and diversity and, you know, all this stuff. Like it's, it very loudly proclaims itself to be an inclusive voice, I guess is my point. Right. And it's like, well, so there's two options then. either they mean it and the, you know, reckoning that is def- that has started and it's definitely coming is going to do a thorough enough job of examining its own power while also rooting out problem individuals. Or we're going to find out that a lot of that language was just being used to sell books, you know? And that is, I think, um, obviously that's scary, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I think that if it is that second one, then people are going to have to really get their shit together and realize that actually in order to be the thing we're all, you know, building our online brands to be um, – you're going to have to mean it a little more. You're going to have to stick up for, you know, people a little more. You're going to have to actually address these sources of power that we, you know, people for too long um, have tried to fit into and exist within rather than actually challenging in a meaningful way. And There's always a moment when when a name gets said yeah where people go i mean there's a knee-jerk reaction to say no that can't be true but there's also a second type of knee-jerk reaction which is to go oh yeah we all knew that or i knew that right um and like i remember my first experience with that was garrison keeler right Mm -hmm. i had heard things and then and then you know kind of that came out and all of a sudden you know i was surrounded by people who were shocked but i knew that Right. And um, that knowing shows that or it's it's part of a whisper network. Right. Which is typically how people um, not in power, but who have knowledge. So they're in some some level of power. They're not completely powerless, but they have some level of knowledge where they can um, warn and kind of protect other people, um, either from things based on their own experience or things that they heard. And a lot of people have been, you know, talking about whether, you know, it's worse that people are excluded from uh, whisper networks or if it's, you know, or if we need to spend more time talking about, you know, why we have whisper networks at all. But either way, um, this had me thinking quite a bit because I was fully and totally bowled over by every single name on the school library journal comments list. Sure. And it got me thinking that I am a terrible addition to the Whisper Network. Why is that? What do you mean by that? Okay, so my job and your job is to be the advocate of an author, right? Uh Like when I'm on the call with somebody and they're like, okay, great. Well, and once my book is sold, like what do you do for me? You know, the, the, the standard answer is, will help you with, you know, your next book and your career, but also like I get to be the bad guy when you don't want to be. Mm-hmm. Like when you want to maintain a good positive relationship with the people you're working with, I get to be the one that fights for you. I get to be your advocate. Yeah. You know, I'm the advocate um, you know, in terms of negotiating contracts. I'm your advocate in making sure that you're safe, you know, at at events or conferences and and making sure that you're going to ones that that are going to be nice and cater to you right um and you know make sure that you're not put in negative positions but what i realized is agents um don't have any ability in the current structure to stop abuse from happening or to protect people from abuse well so i guess i want to push on that a little bit because um 
you know, I guess sometimes the way I see, you know, some of these power structures is like, you know, we've talked about this imbalance between an author who might be perceived as being outside the main core of the industry, whereas, um, you know, someone who's like an editor or someone in-house somewhere might have that kind of power. And I wonder, and you, you help me think through this, um, we're kind of in a position as the go-between, right? Like if some, we sort of have the ability, you know, I don't know, I guess like I was, I was hearing a few other agents talk about this over the last week. Um, and one of them mentioned, well, what about, um, what about behavioral clauses or stuff? Morality and clauses. Morality in clauses in contracts and things like that. And it's like, maybe that's a way that, um, you know, we can, you know, help advocate for an author and create a more safe situation. And, you know, with potential business partners, you know, how do we, you know, a way to keep these imbalances from being exploited in well, a dangerous let's, way? Let's and so talk I guess, for a second about morality clauses. Sure. Because, so there are two contracts that you sign when you're with an agent, yeah. right? There's the contract with the agent, and then there's the contract with the publisher that the agent negotiates, mm-hmm. right? Um, if there's a morality clause in your contract with an agent, basically it's just like another clause that says, you know, when and how they can fire you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really kind of the only power that we have in that is to go, you know, like, I don't want to work with you anymore, but you still sold the book that you already sold. And, you know, yeah. you can't stop this author from getting another agent or from self-publishing or anything like that. So really, all you have is recourse to protect yourself as an agent. Now, a morality clause for, you know, a publisher like that is not really something that you know, an agent can push back on, right? Like, can you imagine an agent, like, talking to, like, Simon & Schuster or something and go, okay, yeah, but, like, put a clause in there. Like, if my author harasses somebody, then, like, they have to pay back all their money. What about if they harass... What about if they harass my author? If they harass the author. I mean, like, what... what But but that is... I I mean, mean, you're right. I can't... Yeah, To your question, no, I can't imagine that because that doesn't really happen right now. But I'm wondering... If that's the sort of thing that I just, I guess like, you know, you say like we're not in a position to, um, you know, exert. And I, I agree that sometimes, you know, the, you know, the whisper networks aren't necessarily the best place for us. But um, I feel like we do have some shred of influence. And it's not that I necessarily disagree. It's that I'm just trying to think yeah. through what's the best way for us to use that in a way as a community, not just like you and me, but like as a community yeah. that exists within the publishing ecosystem. Like, what's the best way to kind of approach that? The only thing that I can think of that I think would be truly, truly valuable um, is a push across agents, you know, to have, you know, publishers put in a clause about the ability for an author to extricate themselves from a contract if there has been kind of harassment or assault from you know, people who they are in contact with during the publication process. Sure. So, like, if your editor is you know is shitty in whatever various way like there you know you might be able to just go okay i'm walking and then walk and see, keep your money but see, i don't what, think a publisher is ever going to say yes yeah to but that. here's what's even even if they did here's what's shitty about that is that um authors want their book to be published yeah of and course. so it's the same it's the same power leverage like the ideal thing would be to say you have to walk my book gets to stay you know, published by your house and you're the one who has to go take a hike, you know, but that's an even, you know, that's an even further push. But like, I guess like, it's just, um, you know, so much of this stuff, it's personal and it's um, scary and it's very often very physical, you know, it's physically dangerous. It's all these things that 
are incredibly, you know, harmful to one's, you know, to one's person or dangerous, you know, and demeaning and all these things that these cases bring up. Um, but it's also professional. You know, this re- this also revolves around people's careers. Like, you know, this is the sort of thing you weigh in. Like, hey, do I want to continue being, a, you know, working? You know, it's we're talking about work relationships here, right? Like, this is all suddenly becomes part of the calculus on whether or not you want to pursue a certain professional opportunity or you want to keep going on a career path. Like, you know, you hear about it in you know, like journalism and stuff, or even other, um, you know, arts industries. You know, people leaving the field. Because they just didn't want to, rightfully so, they just didn't want to deal with this crap anymore. Yeah. And not finishing a terminal that, degree. Exactly. You know whatever. what I mean? And that's a that's a to me a huge thing. And that's where I feel like, man, you know, if our job is to be the advocate for an author, if our job is to help foster an author's career, right? And I guess, you know, we're talking about this specifically about authors. Obviously, there are people in-house, especially especially at the lower level, the assistant level and stuff, where this, you know, it's a separate conversation. But just like talking about um, this specific dynamic where we actually might have some pull, um, it just feels like part of shepherding a, a, um, an artist's career would involve monitoring whether or not they're being made safe at the place they're doing, they're practicing their craft, you yeah. know, and... I just I think it's time, you know, one of the things that maybe agents can do. And I don't know if we have ready answers yet, but like talking about how to make that, you know, how can we put in some stop gaps there? How can we put in some safeguards that protect the rights of the person being harassed as opposed to simply creating situations where they can walk? Because just allowing them to walk simply sustains the problem we have, which is that that desire to not walk is being leveraged against, you know, some person's you know, requested or um, desire to violate that person's, you know, space or, you know, whatever else. And <sighs> there, there is a kind of a complication, I think, from all of this. And there's there's this assumption that agents know, right? Yeah. Like particularly, um, you know, that they that they know what's going on because we're big fat gossips which is true i mean well we're we considered know, the movers and shakers right like we're the ones right. who, are, who are supposed to be making a job out of knowing yeah right but one thing that this recent kind of this this week has shown me is how little i am connected to this to this whisper network like for every one thing that i know there are a hundred things that i don't know yeah um and i think i think a big part of that is because to most people even if you have an agent, an agent is kind of this this like power, right? They're this they're this powerful force. Even if you're working with them, like sure. you know, whisper networks require trust. They require yeah. they require trust and kind of um, and people being in in a similar position. And in even if you know, like I am a woman in my twenties in publishing. Yeah. Um, even if I'm talking to an author who is also a woman in her twenties in publishing. There is this idea that I'm protected or I'm more important or something. And that that trust is harder to foster. And so you and I have each received kind of little bits and pieces um, from trusted friends in publishing. But they're writers and they're like really, you know, I guess you can say plugged in. Mm. Um, And if we didn't have those relationships, we wouldn't have that information at all. Like, it's just us being friends. So, like, maybe part of it is a further, like, maybe a further thing that that agents can do is destigmatize 
the role of agent. You know, make it seem like we're not scary and all powerful and 100% responsible for you succeeding or failing. Well, I think that I think that that's true. But even apart from just um, apart from all those kind of heady things like being powerful or you know any of that, it's just I think that all of us, you know, we've got to be able to work from a place of working together yeah. on this stuff. You know, because these things, this stuff thrives um, when communication breaks down when trust breaks down and when um you know power systems that have been in place for too long that you know are regressive and toxic are allowed to kind of subsist because everyone's out for their own um their own advancement as opposed to um dealing with you know broader structures and problems and i don't know i mean it just it's I just keep thinking about where this is headed and I just, you know, I mean, we're talking, we're talking about authors right now. And I feel like that is going to end up being, once this really gets going in the way that I think if any other industry is an indicator, we can assume that it will here. Um, it's not going to just be authors and, um, you know, people in house, it's going to be assistants and bosses. It's going to be, you know, People, it's going to be in-house to in-house. You know, it's going to be employees of publishing houses. It's going to be employees of agencies. It's going to be, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, it's gonna it's gonna take a reckoning, and it's gonna take challenging some of the old tropes. Um, you know, the um, you know the editors with the mystique, the uh, the people who we viewed as totally irreplaceable. You know, geniuses. Exactly. The, yeah. You know, the per, there's always you know that myth that you know every publishing house of like the one guy who like shows the Don up. Don Draper. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Who shows up to work when he wants. Who leaves when he wants. He's drunk half the time. You know, and there's almost like this, um, you know, this sort of mythic quality to this person. We're supposed to like revere it, and it's like that's the kind of stuff that has to get stamped out because. Um, because that this is what happens. This yeah. is where this is where it comes from. And like, um, you know, we've talked about, um, you know, labor issues, you know, before on this show. And it's like this is something that I think, you know, would fit within that. You know, and it and it's the same idea that we've been talking about, just like building a broad base of coordinated support. You know, like making sure that, um, you know, the power of people who don't have the high level executive jobs are you know, being taken care of and given equal footing in negotiation and things like that. And um, that's when I think we're going to start to see the changes that we need to. But like more than anything, I'm just saying, man, like there's going to be there's going to be a time where publishing has got to decide what it is. If it's the and if it's an industry that wants to take care, you know, that wants to insulate these people from, you know, getting, you know, from their own consequences or if it's an industry that really does want to end up looking out for, um, you know, the same vulnerable people or the same marginalized people that it is. That so we feel so good about that, publishing. Exactly. That it's so loudly proclaiming it wants to be an advocate for. So there's an agent that I know I've met several times, is very friendly with him um, and, you know, very much looked up to him as a successful agent as um Somebody who is farther along in their career and, you know, might be able to help me or give me advice. You know, somebody somebody that I looked up to. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I found out a few months ago that this agent has been extremely inappropriate with authors that have been querying him. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and and like multiple authors and kind of when I when I went back over my interactions with this agent um, I also found a lot of evidence of inappropriate behavior that at the time like I just kind of laughed off like it you know it's not one of those things where um, I took it away with me you know I didn't carry it with me I just kind of it just slipped right off of me as many women are are taught to do with various um, uncomfortable situations Um, and so this was a few months ago and I I had a lot of um, I had a lot of thoughts with people and I had a lot of talks with people about what I should do and I think I had three options right the first was to use my status as an agent to out this person, to kind of protect other women, other young women from him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't do that because I, I was scared. You know, I this this is somebody who is older and more successful, and I am new, um, and don't have a. A, a really robust network of support in terms of like unions or HR systems or something like that. Um, so that was option one that I didn't do. Option number two um, was to kind of use my relationship with this person um, to to warn them, um, probably in the hopes that they would recognize their their actions and stop and kind of that way I would be protecting other women. Um, but in a lot of ways, that is the same thing as being on that agent's side because I would be tipping him off and maybe give him the opportunity to protect himself. And of course, I don't know this person well enough to think that they would correct their behavior based on what I would say. Sure. Um, so I didn't do that either. And the third option was to do nothing. Um, and so I have been sitting here for the past few months with this this knowledge of of this person that mm-hmm. I, you know, have a connection to um, professional and, you know, relatively personal. Um, you know, I'm not like. So I I think a lot about like the way to fix this. Right. And the answer, you know, a lot of people are saying, you know, with with the Weinstein allegations and all sorts of other allegations of anybody just saying like, well, why don't you just name names? Um, and the answer is that it's just it's not safe. And, you know, it's it's different levels of not safe for different people. Mm-hmm. You know, they can you know, and people can um, assess different levels of risk based on what they're comfortable with and, and you know, where they are at professionally. Um And it's not safe for me, but I want it to be safe for me because as we've spent this whole episode talking about, um, I'm in a position of power. Like I am a young woman in publishing, but I'm also in a position of power. And I think, you know, debut authors are also in a position of power. You know, authors who have been around for a while are in a position of power. It's all just varying degrees and types. Exactly. And so I think, Eric, the solution to... A lot of this in many ways is, yes, we will require people to name names. And I wish I could be one of them. Um, But I think the most important thing is really, really starting to build that broad base of support. You know, we we we've talked about unions for agents um, in terms of money. And we've talked about unions for publishers in terms of of money and negotiating rights. But I think 
that in many ways, this is a human rights, human rights and labor issue just the same way that money is. Mm -hmm. Um, I would love it. I would love to hear from people who have advice or thoughts or, or, um, you know, knowledge about this. But I think, I think we're entering a really hard time when people are going to be really, really brave. And, um, we need a support system for those people because it can be a, you know, as we've seen these accounts kind of come up, it's just an, it's an incredibly intimidating space for a lot of people who um, might feel the urge to come out, especially as, you know, they weigh, like you're talking about, like the idea that um, there, you know, there's like this responsibility to come forward and put their own safety on the line when, um, you know, as a means of helping others, when like really the problem is this, this person should simply be, brought to heal you know what I mean like the idea that the moral you know the moral choice is on the person who has you know dealt with the you know harassment or abuse I think is part of the problem right is that the the responsibility has been pushed into onto the inappropriate person and um yeah no it just makes this stuff uh tricky and like so these um just like this broad-based support and like building you know uh, publishing into a culture that makes people feel less tenuous in their position, like yeah. makes it feel like people aren't simply going to lose whatever footing they have the second they say something, I think is, um, I think it's important. Yeah. We're, I'm, I'm going to keep looking for ways to build that. Um, yeah. I, I know that that'll be something that we are going to be revisiting again and again on print run in the coming weeks and months and years. Um, and I would love to hear from all of you. Um, but I'm, I'm going to, to close this episode, um, not with any answers, but instead with a pub tip that I hope you find valuable. Um, and it's this, no one person in publishing can make or break your career. You know, publishing talks about the agent or the editor Uh or, you know, the article in whatever, um, you know, in whatever publication as being the thing that breaks you out. Mm -hmm. Um, but that, isn't true, first of all. Right. And um, secondly, it's that is how people have been able to prey on new authors or people new to this industry. By making it seem as though they're the essential piece and you're the thing that could be replaced. So your takeaway for today, your pub tip is that you, the writer, are the essential piece. Yeah. Um, Run away if anybody says, yes, I can sell your book if you do X. Um, Take care of yourself. Band together. um, And we will see you next week for hopefully um, uh, some answers or even just a cheerier topic. (laughs) 